Genesis 1.26 to 2.9. And as always, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning as we look at God's Word together. Again, let's go to Him in prayer and let's ask that He would bless, that He would give us understanding, that He would enable us to receive His Word and to believe it and to trust in His Son that His Word reveals. Let's pray. Father, again, we turn our eyes off of this earth with its emptiness and off of our own feebleness and frailness and inability to help ourselves, and we lift our eyes up to you, the eternal God, the everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and the earth who neither faints nor is weary. We pray, our God, that you would give us understanding this morning as we read your word. We pray that you would make us to understand more about you and more about who we are and more about what you have done in Christ to bring us back to yourself. Father, we need the blessing and the working of your Holy Spirit this morning as your word is read and preached. So help us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, and we looked last week at the general creation account, verses 1 through 27, and now we're picking up on day 6 and that special creation of man. Moses now writes, Then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small part of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground." And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God 
endures forever. There is a speech in the second act of Shakespeare's Hamlet in which Shakespeare puts into the mouth of Hamlet a description of man that is probably matched only in greatness by the words of the psalmist in Psalm 8 when Hamlet asked, What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason! How infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, no, nor woman, neither. You see something in Shakespeare's statement of his understanding of Scripture. You see something in his statement of his knowledge of the Bible. You see something in that statement of his understanding of both the the dignity of man and the depravity of man, the exaltation of man and the frailty and the baseness of man. In a very real sense, you see what he's saying, that man is both the crown of God's creation, as the old writers used to say, and he is a frail child of dust and feeble as frail. And as we meditate on those words, what a piece of work is man? We're we're faced with the question, what is man? You know, one of the great things that I think the unbelieving world fails to see is while they talk about who they are and they talk about their own identity and unbelievers like to think about what sets them apart from other people, what is fundamental to their misunderstanding about even who they are and why they're here is that they don't ask the question, the general question, what is man? And what God does in Genesis 1 is he is telling us in a very real sense his plan in, yes, the creation of the whole world and his desire for the goal of creation and where he wants to bring creation. But God is telling us in a very focused sense about man. He's telling us much about himself, his power, his wisdom, his goodness, his holiness, and all of those aspects of God and his glory. But God is telling us about man. And unless we come to Genesis 1, and unless we receive the testimony of God in Genesis 1, and unless we put ourselves here and say, what is man? What am I as a human being? And receive the testimony of God, and unless we ask what man originally was created to be, and unless we see what happened to man in the fall in chapter 3 of Genesis, and unless we receive the testimony of Scripture about the nature of man at creation and the nature of man after the fall, we will never, ever come to a place to understand what our life is, why we're here, what's God's purpose in our life, and how we're to live in this world. And what Moses is telling us, and there's so much, there's so many riches that the creation account could tell us, and we could spend uh, sermon after sermon after sermon looking at this very basically, Moses is going to tell us three things about man. First, he's going to tell us that man is dependent on God. He is a creature. He is a creature of God. Secondly, he's going to tell us that man is distinguished from the animals. He is, as I've said already, the Lord of the lower world, the crown of God's creation. And then finally, we're going to see that man is dignified as the image of God. He is dependent, he is distinguished, and he is dignified. Well, notice that as you look at these two chapters together, you might be tempted to say, well, do we have two different creation accounts? It seems that there are two things. Did Moses cobble together an ancient Near Eastern uh, mythopoetic uh, way of explaining to Israel who Yahweh was in contrast to the other gods? And then there's some other account in Genesis 2, 4, and following. It looks like there's two accounts, but 
really there's only one account. And one lens is looking at the days of creation leading up to man, and the other is focused on man as the center, the centerpiece of God's creation. The one account in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4, the first part of that verse, is really telling us that God was making all things for man. John Calvin has a remarkable sermon on this text in which he says that God is like a father preparing everything in advance for the son that's about to be born into this world. Listen to what he says. Calvin, when he's speaking about this, he says that God first filled the earth with good things and riches for everything is for man's use. The very first thing is that God is creating a world in which man will have everything that he needs. He'll have the food that he needs. He'll have the light that he needs. God is creating all of that for man. So far from naturalistic and humanistic and modern scientific theories about what man is as some animalistic development, God has created everything, including the animals. He is creating all of it for man. He is providing for man. He is telling man that I've provided you food and I've given you work to do and, and this world is your world to explore and it's your world to govern in a very real sense. Old uh, theologians love to speak of Adam and as man in general, and by man I mean men and women, as the lords of the lower world, as God's deputy governors. That's what you are by virtue of creation. That was God's intention. God was creating this world so that man would have a habitable home to dwell in and to live in, and God was providing for him, and man was dependent on God. You know, before even speaking about the, the distinction between men and animals and before speaking about uh, the role that God gave man and the dignity of being the only thing that is ever the image of God in any part of creation before ever saying any of that, we need to realize that man is a creature. And there's something interesting in Genesis 1. There's something interesting because on one hand, God's telling us that man is in many ways just like everything else. He'll tell us that the same food that the animals eat in verse 30 of chapter 1 is the same food that he provided for man. He'll tell us that on the sixth day, he made the beast from the stuff, the dust of the ground, the raw material, and that he would then make man out of the same material. You know, it's funny when modern evolutionary scientists talk about similarities between men and animals, we ought to be able to say, you know, the Bible told us that a long time before your evolutionary theories came around. The Bible tells us in the first chapter that men and beasts have a very close similarity. The writer to Ecclesiastes will tell us that one of the futilities and the vanities of life is that the same thing that happens to the beast happens to you. Your body will go back to the dust, your spirit will go to God. That there's a similarity, that before talking about the distinction and the dignity, God wants us to understand our frailty, our creatureliness, lest we forget that he is the creator and we are the creature. God is going to invest so much dignity into man that it would be possible for man to forget what he is as a creature if God did not remind him that he came from the same place as the beast and that he eats the same food as them and that he is dependent on God for the same breath 
You know, it's interesting, the language, God breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life, and Moses says, a man became a living being, and that's the same language used of the animals, that they're living beings, that that's all we are, is just living, created beings, dependent on God to sustain us and keep us, and we're creatures, we're, we are in, our, in an unfallen state, Adam was still finite and limited and and the, the distance between he and God was enormous. God is the infinite creator. He is not limited by anything. He doesn't have a body. We're contained in these bodies. You know, I did a little uh, study to see how much the human body's worth. Now, maybe you've done this, and if you have, and you think, well, organs, wait, you can sell all the organs. Just the raw stuff of the body, the minerals, the things that are in the, the ground out of which God made us, it's estimated that the human body is maybe worth $150. You can do the research yourself. Very little value to the raw stuff out of which you're made. God wants us to understand first that we are dependent on him, that we don't have anything without him, that he's provided everything in advance. Interesting point, God doesn't create man and then bring everything about and let man develop with him as he does it. He creates it all, then creates man, then gives it to man so that man would remember that God is the provider. Before there's a sun, what's the point of that? Before there's a sun, before, how can there be light scientifically? Again, if God told you, it would blow your mind how arrogant man is to try to think that God couldn't have light before a sun, how proud and arrogant men are to try to scientifically say that's not possible. What's the point of that? God is showing that light doesn't come from the sun that he is the source of light, that he is the source of provision? How does he keep plants alive without rain? And if we adopt a naturalistic worldview and we say that's impossible, then we're missing the point. The point is that God is the provider and that all of his creation is dependent on him, that we are dependent on him for life and breath and all things. And that is built deeply into the first chapter of Genesis. But secondly, Moses is telling us that man is distinct from the animals, and it's hard to miss that. You know, when God created all the other things according to their kind, when he created each day and he separated the light from the darkness and the water from the dry land and, and the waters above the heavens from below the heavens and each animal according to its kind, God spoke to creation and he said, let there be, and he spoke at creation and he spoke into time and space. But with man, he speaks, as it were, to himself. He takes us up into the heavenly worship room and we get a, a glimmer of what's going on in the inner Trinitarian relationship of God. And he says, he doesn't speak to time and space and say, let there be man. He says, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion over the fish and over the birds and over the animals and over all the things on the earth, and there's a distinction. No other creature has the distinction that man has. No other creature has been given the purpose that man has been given. God had a unique, distinct role in creating man. He had a distinct purpose in creating man. When men take this, and oftentimes they turn it on its head, I've often thought that's odd that in the Bible... In, in level of importance and value, God is infinite, and then man, and then the animals down to creation. And, and what unbelievers do is they turn that on their head. God is 
to be despised and, and least valuable. And man is, that's why we abort babies. This is, this is the Sunday when we should all be acknowledging how wicked abortion is. It's murder. 55 million human being image bearers slaughtered because fallen man turns that and says, we're not distinct. And, and they elevate animals above man in value. God is drawing that distinction. God has created the whole world for man. Man is the center of God's creation. Everything's moving in the creation account. It mounts up to the creation of man. Notice this teaches us to see how special man is as a creature. Even the angels who the Bible says are greater in power and glory than you and me, the Bible says the angels are greater in power and glory than you and me, do not receive the special distinction that God gives as he gives to man in the creation account. He distinguishes man from everything else that he creates. Every other living being, there is a, a special purpose of God in distinguishing man. Now that should lead us to say, why does he do that? And, and how should I live as distinct in this world? How should I live as the Lord of the lower world? How should I live as one that God has delegated authority to? How should, how should I conduct myself? How should I view all of creation? How should I view the distinctions God has made between um, certain kinds of animals? You know, there's a really neat observation here that Moses doesn't just tell us that God created mankind or man in his own image, but notice that he says that God created male and female Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You know, I used to think about this. Um, why does the Bible say in Genesis that God created each according to their kind, but he doesn't say that about man? Because God creates man according to the image of God kind. God creates man according to the image of God kind. There's something so distinct and different. He creates the beast according to their, their kinds. He creates male and female men according to the image of God kind. There's the strongest possible distinction drawn between man and every other kind of animal that God has created under heaven. But thirdly, and most importantly, and I want us to consider this for the rest of our time, is that God is creating man with dignity. You know, when you look at the world and you think about um, what Hamlet says, you think about what the psalmist says, what David says in Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have, have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? And then the answer is you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have you have set all things in dominion under him. You have, you have put your image in him. Man does not have the image of God. He is made in the image of God as the image of God. He is God's image in this world. In a very real sense, if you ask what does it mean to be an image, there's lots of ways that we can answer that. One of those is the idea of a statue, that God was putting creatures that would represent him and his righteousness and his holiness and his goodness on the, the planet that he created, and he, he created man to represent him, to show forth his glories, to be the, the image of him, 
to say, this is what God is like. This is what the creator is like. This is how the creator functions. And, and while man is so far from being the creator, he has given creative abilities and he has given rule. God is the ruler over all. Very interesting that Moses actually says that the greater light was made to rule the day and the lesser light was made to rule the night, but they can't rule creation and they can't govern and they can't order. Only man will be able to do that. That God has so invested man with dignity that the very ordering and developing and progress of creation that God created out of nothing for man is dependent on man in order that man would show God's image forth. You know, I love when the Pharisees and scribes are debating with Jesus and, and they're trying to trick him and about paying taxes and he says, bring me a coin. And they bring him a coin and he says, whose image is on that? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And at first, first glance you think, well, he's saying there are things that Caesar possesses that God doesn't possess. And then you forget that this is Jesus who has put his image on man and that while the coin had Caesar's image, every person has God's image and has been made as the image of God in the likeness of God, with a resemblance in the original creation to God himself, not in physical demeanor. God doesn't have a body like man, but in moral capability and intellectual capability. Man is the only creature, and this is the biggest thing you can take away today. Man is the only creature created to fellowship with and commune with God. No other creature has been created to have intimate fellowship and communion with God. God has put dignity on man because he said, not that I need it, but I want it. I want to have fellowship with men. I want to live in fellowship. He planted a special garden, we're told, that after creating man, he created a garden, and he put man in there, and it was the temple, just like the tabernacle afterwards, and the temple after that. That was where God was dwelling with man. God created man with dignity so that man would have fellowship, and here's the saddest thing about it is that by nature, men are alienated from the life of God. By nature, no man knows what fellowship and communion with God is like. And by grace, only those who have been redeemed by Jesus have tasted any degree of what it means to actually be a dignified image bearer of God, having God's image restored through the Lord Jesus in part. The sad story of the Bible is not that man remains dignified, it's not that man remains great. It's that this, this man that is dependent on God for everything, this man who is a creature like the other creatures, this man who has been given distinctive uh, roles and a, and a distinctive creation from other creatures, this man who has received the dignity of being the image and the likeness of God has fallen. I think for us to understand the contrast it would help us to try to imagine in our minds what man may have been like before the fall. He wasn't a Neanderthal. Man, man has not improved. In fact, it was a great fall from what he would have been. Thomas Boston, the great Scottish Puritan in his, um, great Scottish theologian in his magnum opus, Human Nature and Its Fourfold States, speaks about what Adam would have been like at creation. Listen to this. He says, man was a very glorious creature. 
We have reason to suppose that as Moses' face shone when he came down from the mountain, so man had a very lightsome and pleasant countenance and beautiful body, while as yet there was no darkness of sin in him at all. But seeing God himself is glorious in holiness, surely that spiritual beauty the Lord put upon man at his creation made him a very glorious creature. You know, there's very few people that will ever hear what you're hearing. That man of creation would have been far more glorious, would have had his full and her full intellectual and moral abilities intact. They would have been able to use their minds to the greatest extent. You know, I have no idea how anyone can measure how much we use our brains. They say 10%. No idea how they could ever measure that. Can you imagine if we could use 100 percent of our minds. Adam, untainted by sin, in the garden, had the ability to use his mind as a creature to the fullest capacity that he was able to use that mind to in his natural state. He would have appeared in the radiance glory of God that, that our minds can't even begin to fathom except, as Boston says, when we mirror it with Moses in the presence of God and, and the reflected glory off of his face or, or we think of the Lord Jesus at the transfiguration when God and the divine nature burst through the human nature. And, and Luke says that Moses and Elijah appeared with him in glory and that the glory cloud covered Peter, James, and John and that everybody on the mountain was in glory. And that's Adam at creation. He is in glory. He is invested with dignity. He is radiating the glory of God. He is showing forth the magnificent wisdom and power and love of God. And all of that is lost when he takes and he says, I will be like God. I will not be the image of God. I will now try to make God in my own image. And that's the sad history, isn't it, after the fall, that every man, woman, and child since the fall has been trying to make God into his and her own image. You know, Adam had a task as an image bearer. He was to take the garden out, and, and I assume that he was to make the world into the garden. He was to cultivate it. He, was, he and Eve were to uh, be, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. They were to take dominion. They were to exercise that delegated dominion. They were to turn the earth into a temple of worshipers, of people living in unbroken fellowship with God, naming the animals that God had already named and had already made and that he brought to them and, and, and gardening and colonizing and building and discovering and exploring and praising God for all of his bounty and all of his goodness. And man failed the mission that God gave him because man said, I will be like God. I am dignified. I am not a creature. I will determine whether I will die if I take and eat of the tree of which God says not to eat. And the rest of the Bible is the story, isn't it, of how God's going to fix that. It's the story of how the God in whose image we were made in holiness and righteousness and, and moral capabilities and intellectual capabilities, that God and, and the God that we now by nature despise and hate. And the Bible says that men are at enmity with him and hostility with him and, and alienated from him has decided I will love an unlovely creature. It's as if a father has a son who has, has gotten in a horrible fight and his face is all marred. The son that used to look like the father. He used to look like the father. And now he's unrecognizable. 
That's us by nature, spiritually. We don't look like God. We're unrecognizable. And God says, my son, I will come and I will redeem you. I will heal you. I will put my image back in you. I will take all the ways that you have marred it. I will come. I will come in your likeness, in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. I will renew that image again. And the rest of the Bible is the story of God saying, let me restore your image through my image bearer, Jesus Christ. And I love the way the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus at the beginning when it's talking about the Son being the final word of God. And the writer says, he is the brightness of his glory and the exact image of his person. And that Jesus in every way embodies the perfect image of God. And if you want to see what God's like, you look at Jesus. And Jesus says, look at me and come to me and I'll heal you. I'll make you a new creature. When the Apostle Paul, and he, I think, is often reflecting on the creation and fall account. If you want to understand theology, you get this. And then you'll get theology and you'll understand Paul. You'll understand Peter. And Paul's every talking, talking about the old man and the new man. And in Colossians 3.10, he says that we are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created us that we're to put on the new man. And, that, and then in Ephesians 4.24, he says that, that, that God is renewing his image in us in true righteousness and holiness, that God is reconstructing. It's as if there was a beautiful painting that has had graffiti put all over it, and God is having it cured and made new again. And the beauty of the Bible is that God is saying in Scripture, I created you with this glorious purpose. I invested you with this dignity. I made you distinct from creation. I gave you every reason to praise me for the bounty and the goodness and even the dependence that you have upon me. And you've rebelled against me, and you deserve my wrath and my judgment. But I will come, and I will not only make you a new creature, I will come as the second Adam, and I will do what Adam never did and never could have done. And Jesus as the second Adam, and this is the, the best and perhaps the highest way that the Apostle Paul thinks about Jesus and his saving work is that he is the last Adam. And Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 15 that just as we bore the image of the man of dust, so if we get ourselves into Jesus, we will bear the image of the heavenly man, that he is the Lord from heaven, and that God will raise up frail creatures of dust, fallen creatures of dust, rebels, and he will make us into glorious beings, that what God intends is something greater than what even Adam would have attained to if Adam had obeyed. And that now we know the dying love of God and the restoring grace of God and the mercy of God and the purposes of God because Jesus, as he hangs on the tree, is securing not just the image restoration of people, but the whole restoration and regeneration of the cosmos. I love, I mentioned Hebrews 8 at the beginning, where the writer of Hebrews is one of the greatest creational Psalms. He's reflecting on Genesis 1. And, and he knows that we're fallen. It's one of the marvelous things about Scripture is 
always assume that the people you're writing know at least as much as you do. He knows that creation's in disarray. He knows. He's being chased by Saul every day of his life just about at this point. He knows that men are at enmity and they're not what they should be and creation's at, at, in hostility with itself, and he knows. And, and he takes up this great creational psalm and, and he says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? And then he rehashes what God intended man to be. And he says, you have put all things in dominion under him. But it doesn't look like everything's in dominion under man. Man doesn't look like a good lord of the lower world. He doesn't look like a faithful servant giving God glory, exercising loving, wise dominion the way God intended. And so you're left with this psalm, and you're left with wondering what did the psalmist mean by going there and saying that until you come to the book of Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews rehashes that psalm. And then he says, we do not yet see all things put under man. We don't see man fulfilling the purpose that God originally created him to have. We don't see him in his dignity. We don't see him in his distinctiveness. We don't see him fulfilling the purpose God gave him. And then the writer of Hebrews says, we do not yet see all things put under man, but we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And we understand that the whole story of the Bible is summed up in that statement. How will I ever be what God wants me to be? How will I ever be what God originally intended for me to be? How will I ever fulfill the purpose that God intends for me? Will I ever be what God created me to be? And the answer is in Jesus, through his sufferings, through his substitutionary death, through his victory over the evil one, through him subduing all things to himself, through his death and resurrection. And right now, and this is the glorious truth, right now, the purpose for, of God for man in Genesis 1 is right now being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ who is already glorified as a man. We have a glorified representative second Adam sitting on the throne of God right now. If you're in Christ, that's the reality for you. And he is ruling and reigning, and all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, and it doesn't matter if it doesn't look like it has. It doesn't matter. It has. And through the proclamation of the gospel and the missionary endeavor of the church, God is restoring men and women into his image. And he's, he's creating new creatures that are going to be part of that new creation. And one day... We are going to be in a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And all of Genesis 1 won't be scientific speculation for you if you're one of the intelligent, inquisitive types. It will be reality. You will realize that what God intended, what Adam lost, Christ has secured through his death and his res resurrection. You know, I, I'll leave you with this thought because I could never tell you how all of it works to any kind of degree, but I do know this. Jesus 
is able to restore the image of God in us because he takes all of the sin and all of the filth and all of the guilt and all of the shame and all of the corruption with which his image has been marred in us. He takes all of that that doesn't make us look like God, everything that makes us look contrary to God, he takes that on himself at the cross. And God the Father pours all his wrath out on the Son, and the Son takes all the punishment that we deserve, and he propitiates the wrath. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, the perfect image of you? Why have you cast off your perfect image? And the only answer is because he means to restore it in you if you will trust in him. Now that image restoration is a lifelong process. I think I'll say this just in passing. One of the reasons I think that God creates progressively in Genesis 1, he doesn't just do it instantaneously, is because the work of sanctification and God renewing his image in us in the new creation is a work that happens progressively. He does it step by step and stage by stage, and it doesn't look like what it should be in the final product. But God is reconstructing and reforming and repolishing and remolding. And if you're in Jesus, rest assured that God is at work in restoring his image in you. That's what God is doing. If you ask, people often say, what, why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? If you're in Jesus, I can tell you the answer to every question that you have about why you're going through what you're going through. If you're in Jesus, if you're not in Jesus, none of this is true for you. If you're in Christ, God is at work reshaping his image in you. And all the trials and afflictions and chastenings and hardships and uncertainties and losses and all the encouragements and all the edifications and the sweet times and the, the nearness, all of that is God working you to trust him, to learn to live as what you should have in fellowship with him, and, and he is working his righteousness and his holiness into you. I know that, and I'll close with this, because he says that in his word. Hebrews chapter 12, he says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, no chastening seems joyful at present, but painful, nevertheless, it is bearing the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those that receive it. God wants you to be what he intended man to be. He's done everything for you to become that. He is doing that in you if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, God wants you to turn to Jesus Christ so that his image will be restored in you. Whether or not you receive this doesn't change the fact that you are the image of God and that you need that image restored to the full. Let him who has ears to hear let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we need your image restored in us. We are so far from what we should be. We are, in many ways, a great perversion of what you intended us to be in the original creation. And yet, our God, we know that you are working out your eternal purposes for us in Jesus Christ in redemption. We are thankful, Lord, that you are restoring your image in us in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. We pray that you would hasten that process, that you would sanctify us more, that we might reflect more of who you are in this world that you have created. Our Father, we pray that you would make us to long 
for the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells and that we might realize the full privileges that we have in the Lord Jesus who has put all things in dominion under his feet. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.